Come here. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Hey, baby. Oh, you're strong. Maybe you should help me now, okay? Get it off, man, okay? It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time egg lover, Andrew Raphael. I know, I know exactly the sound effects you're going for, but it sounds like a whale is in distress. Yeah, well. <laughs> and so for this week's episode, we're actually reaching back into our archives and are releasing the Prometheus Best Forgotten Movies episode. So I guess we should really put together some information as to why this episode didn't get released. This was actually my bad, guys. We did record this episode and it was supposed to be released in the build up to alien covenant it was actually supposed to be released just before alien covenant did come out but i got behind on the editing and then alien covenant came out and so much of our conversation was actually based around the fact that alien covenant hadn't been released yeah that to release it after the fact i felt like people were going to get confused as to where we were (laughs) that we were almost outdated already yeah I do ask our audience as well to just bear in mind that we did record this well before Alien Covenant was due to come out, so you may find some of the conversation lacks the context that Alien Covenant provides. But, you know, things happen, but it's finally being released now, so I hope (laughs) this brings closure to our audience. So, everybody, here comes the Best Forgotten Movies episode of Prometheus. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that time forgot. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time company man, Andrew Phillips. Oh, I'm a credible character. (laughs) And today we're venturing out to the furthest reaches of space to meet our glorious makers and ask them just what the fuck is going on in Ridley Scott's Prometheus. Do we get a straight answer? Well, find out after the trailer. A king has his reign. And then he dies. It's inevitable. civilizations that were separated by centuries and yet this same pictogram was discovered in every one of them they're smiling i think they want us to come and find them we're all here because of a map you two kids found in a cave not a map an invitation from whom please tell me you can read that If you love the final season of Lost, then Prometheus is the film for you. This sci-fi body horror begins when a host of unfathomably dense characters venture across the gulf of space in search of their makers, 
only to find gods and oxygen-starved Mark Strong look-alike. In a film chock-full of murderous monsters, Numira Pace violently battles with her own English accent in Ridley Scott's Alien Dicties. <laughs> so, why have we chosen Prometheus for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies? It's called shit, innit? <laughs> well... Alien Covenant should be coming out soon. This is hopefully going out on Alien Day, and Alien Covenant will be coming out in the next few yes, weeks. So yes. I thought that, you know, we could go and choose a film that um, in the Alien series that didn't perhaps perform as well as expected, both in terms of the the response to the film from the fans and in terms of the box office, but we'll get into that later. I think also it's been the film in the Alien series, given what we know of Covenant, that they're almost trying to brush it under the rug a little bit take the best elements of it and kind of leave the rest behind yeah and yeah. Uh, rebrand itself once more they're leaning harder on the alien element of the series again and leaving perhaps a few of the elements brought to the forefront by prometheus but some of the new stuff they're leaving that behind it does the smell of soft reboot yes definitely yeah yeah it does have that air about it so, Andy, what experience do you have with Prometheus? Uh, I mean, we've spoke about it at length on the uh, podcast before when reviewing the previous Alien films. I mean, yeah, we've done yeah. AVP and Alien Resurrection and as a commentary. Mm. So, the fans surely know that we are fans of the series. But let's talk about Prometheus specifically. Were you, like, excited to see this film? I was very excited to see this film, especially after that first trailer. Yes. Which... Must go down in history as one of the worst representative trailers of all time <laughs> in terms of how much it promised. It's a bit like that Star Wars Episode 1 trailer, where yeah. it promises much but delivers very little on that. Uh, and also, like the, the style of it's completely different to yeah. what actually was delivered. I can't believe that we're only four minutes into this podcast and there's already been a mention of the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, I mean, it's... Definitely not on the same level as that, but there was a kind of backlash in the fact that I think this film has been brushed under the rug in the same way that the Star Wars prequels have. Mm. Not that there's a, a connotation of quality. I mean, that that Prometheus is a much better made film than uh, any of those Star Wars yeah. prequels. But yeah. I feel like within the Alien fan community, I think just based on how much potential it had, based on who was involved uh, and everything like that, how much it wasted made it much more of a disappointment than, than say, Alien Resurrection or the AVP films. Yeah. Just because it could have been on the level of Alien and Aliens and, and all that. It, it just... It could have easily been. Yeah and, yeah. and the fact that it isn't is all the more disappointing, I think. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that I do want to say in terms of drawing those parallels to the Star Wars prequels, as many have with Prometheus within the alien fan community. I mean, one of the things that I think that this film has on its side that uh, the Star Wars prequels don't is the Star Wars prequels were following films that were, well, two and a half brilliant films really when we talk about the star wars prequels and jedi yeah, a yeah. little bit it's a half a masterpiece and half a shaky film yeah yeah whereas with the alien series prometheus is following on from a couple of decades worth of guff really yeah i mean yeah. from alien 3 onwards i'm a huge fan of alien 3 but um we're talking about alien resurrection avp avp2 we've even had countless games and not all of them have been good and that actually when we get round to Prometheus there's um, already a lot of hard work that has to be done to kind of steady the boat 
because the credibility was oozing away from the series with every time Fox decided to make a film, every time Tom Rothman decided that he wanted to do something with the Alien series, its credibility was just going away. So I actually think that, in a way, Prometheus is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And to go back to that trailer that you were mentioning, it is a fantastic trailer. And um, you are right in terms of what it promises that Prometheus doesn't deliver on. And one of the things that I remember that people talked about, one of the websites I used to go on was AVP Galaxy, still do posts on it occasionally as well. It's got quite a large alien community there. And one of the things that people were very upset about when it came to the trailers for Prometheus was that they were quite spoilery. They gave away um, a lot of the film, even though they were teasing mystery and stuff like that. Mm. And I think that's because Prometheus is a film poses questions that it doesn't answer yeah i mean trailers are supposed to set up what questions the films are going to ask <laughs> that's the point of of a trailer is to, to, yeah, to yeah. get you in gear to give you an idea of what the story is what you're getting yourself into so the prometheus trailers do set up these questions but the film doesn't answer them either no so no. I, I do get that and and it does go a little too far we do see perhaps a touch too much in terms of explosions and whatnot uh, yeah yeah we'll probably be talking about this throughout the discussion as well as regards to the fact that one of the main writers on this is a uh, predominantly a television writer yes and that's his background and there is a lot to prometheus that feels like it's a television pilot for a series yeah yeah i, I do um, get a feeling for that in almost an arrogant way that it feels like oh we're not going to answer any questions here we're not going to self-contain this at all yeah i'd say it's cynical in that yeah. way um in the same way as Another example of that for me is the um, Spider-Man 2. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2. That was a film that... I was on is, the telly yesterday. Oh, it's, it's an awful <laughs> yeah. film. I mean, I'm not the, the biggest... Uh, I do like the Spider-Man films, but I'm uh, I'm not the, mm. the, the biggest uh, comic book movie fan that no. is out there. There are much bigger fans out there than me, but I do like the occasional comic book movie. I remember going to see Amazing Spider-Man 2 and walking out thinking I had just seen half a film that yeah. was uh, over two hours long. But I get a feeling that Prometheus came out at a time where people were too concerned with setting up cinematic universes and they thought the way to do that and to set up franchises were to ask questions that they don't answer. Mm. And I think, luckily, uh, well, hopefully, that's a lesson that Hollywood has learned and moved on from now because it does seem now that we're going to see films that are their own individual package. I mean, another example of that, I thought a film that was going to do that was Rogue One. Yeah. And that ended up being its own complete package. One of the most refreshing things about that film, even though it does have its flaws, was that it was self-contained. Yeah. And it has no scope for a franchise. No, uh, no. I mean, it's already belongs to a franchise, but had no scope to go any further with those characters. And I really like that. And yeah. I think Prometheus could have done with a bit of that as well. Yeah. It just feels like many, many drafts away from the final product. Because I even remember writing my own script one time, um, my own sort of sci-fi script, and uh, I had the ending go into another film. Yeah. And then it was much later that I realized that was the wrong way to go about it. And I think also as well, ending it on that kind of cliffhanger poses many problems because when you make films, when you write stories, ultimately how the film ends is your defining statement of what this film is about. Yes. And because you've got a, an ending that's so open-ended you just get to the end of Prometheus and go, what was that all about then? Yeah. And the fact that they're dealing with quite heady subject matter, but it's done in such a way that it feels like it's some sort of 
Ooh, Osborne book of history, you know, Osborne <laughs> yeah. book of religion. Yeah. And it's been dealt with, with such a, in such a blunt way. Yeah. And the fact that you get nothing out of it, I think comes off worse for it because it's, it's dealing with something that's potentially very provocative, but is so ham-fisted that it just makes the film feel quite dumb. And it's like a really stupid person trying to be really intelligent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've read a few books sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's the number one thing why this film is perhaps quite maligned by fans and even non-fans, actually, people who've seen it, where it was like, it's not an alien movie, but it didn't give me any answers to what it set up anyway. So what was the point in that? Yeah. That seems to be the general consensus of it. I mean, there's many, many more flaws within that, but that seems to be the crux of the problem of this film. Mm Mm-hmm. So, going back to my original question that we have uh, strayed from somewhat, mm. what were your initial reactions to filming? What can you remember about the film coming out and what the reactions of the like uh, the fan base were? Yeah, were? I mean, I remember feeling all right about it when I came out of the cinema. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I, it wasn't until a bit later I kind of realised, yeah. oh, maybe it's not as good. And then on rewatching, it's like, I think every time I rewatch the film now, you can see more and more problems with it and i don't think it was really until the blu-ray came out yeah and you got to see some of the deleted scenes that it was really apparent what had been missed and what an opportunity had been missed once we got to see those deleted scenes it was fairly obvious by that point that there was a much better film in there and that's the really frustrating thing as well is that given some re-editing i mean there's still talk of a an extended cut of this or re-edit of this on the cards. And obviously Fox originally were wanting it to happen straight away and then Ridley went, no. Yeah, Um, I mean, the box art for the three-disc collector's edition that we have, the 3D version with the fantastic Furious Gods documentary mm -hmm. on it, the box art said on it, director's edition or something like that on the front (laughs) of it. So it was a last-minute change to actually take that off, to rename it the collector's edition. So somewhere out there, there is, in the Fox vault somewhere, there is that extended edition just waiting to be tinkered with. Yeah, and that's the really frustrating thing, the fact that it would still not be a perfect film because there's a lot of problems at the writing stage a lot of problems at the writing stage in the characterization but the fact that even with what they did shoot there's a much stronger film that could be garnered out of the material that they've shot once we got to see that i think that level of frustration started to set in and we were like yeah oh this could be better uh, so much to the point where actually i made my own version of prometheus yeah yeah uh, quite a long time ago now but um and I yeah. can attest to its quality. Is it a far? It is a far superior version. Yeah. Than the uh, than the version that was actually released theatrically. And also that does include additions, but also quite a few subtractions to, especially in terms of character pieces as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just as simple as taking out a little line here and yep. there, and it it changes the scene and it makes yeah. it flow so much easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, to talk about where I am at with this film and. Uh, seeing it at the time as well i was much like you i had a very um well quite a positive reaction to the film i did go to the midnight screening by the end of it speaking to the fans outside of the screening it was clear that the fan base itself was going to be divided by this film there were its passionate advocates and people that just downright hated it yeah i remembered someone saying that was as bad as alien resurrection when it finished uh sat behind me <laughs> But um, I actually had a positive experience with the film. Um, I liked a lot of what it was dealing with. And since then, much like yourself, each watch has kind of peeled back a layer 
or added a layer of frustration, as I should <laughs> yeah, say, yeah. as the film is slowly unraveled. But for me, it doesn't actually, uh, we'll get into this as we talk about the film later, but for me, it's actually, it's a certain point in the film. I really am still on board with the film to a certain point. And it's uh, once it hits that mark, it falls apart rapidly and it frustrates me more and more every time we watch it. I'd say I've probably plateaued now in terms of yeah, my frustration. Yeah. I've, I've hit a point and perhaps... Like you say, you've made your own edit of it. I've seen it. It's much better. It makes the film much more consistent tonally and structurally as well. However, I think that's probably added a bit of an emotional attachment to the editing side of things yeah, as well, yeah. which um, I don't have. But um, I, I, I don't know. I'm still kind of positive with this film, but I, it, it does. It is, it is a frustrating yeah experience. That is revisit. definitely the, the word to use for this film is frustrating. Yeah. And it's because... Some of the fixes are so close and within such easy grasp. I mean, some of them are as as easy as just looking on the deleted scenes. Yeah. And, and, it, just... and it's the frustrating thing is that some of the fixes are so obvious and some of the problems are so obvious that you're just baffled as to why no one went, uh, hang on, yeah, this yeah. doesn't work, and or we could do this. I mean, on like a film school level. Like, oh, yeah. That, like first year film school, it's some of the like fundamentals that they teach you in that class in terms of, how you pay attention to your characters and character consistency. To be honest, like it's that. not even film school stuff. It's just like you could ask a man on the street and yeah, they yeah. would be able to tell you mm-hmm. some of the things that they could do to fix. Ah, oh, it's just... Uh, if I ever see Pietro Scalia, I'm going to be like, <laughs> dude, what the fuck did you do with this film? Yeah. Because it's that level of incompetence. No, it is. It, it really is. I mean, we spoke about this before we um, actually started recording, but this really needed a Dodie Dawn. Yeah. Perhaps she hasn't been working on the best film since Kingdom of Heaven, but that passion that she brought to Kingdom of Heaven on this, on Prometheus. You needed someone with a spine. Yeah, exactly. To argue the case of something, not someone who would just sort of lie down and roll over. Yeah. But usually we do go into the uh, context where we look at the history of a film, how it got made, because uh, we need to really understand how something got made before we can ask the question as to whether or not it landed. We have to understand where it came from. So where does Prometheus come from? I mean, we have covered this somewhat on the podcast before when we were speaking about the Alien vs. Predator film. And um, just before they were made Alien vs. Predator, Ridley Scott and James Cameron actually met up to discuss making another Alien film. Yeah. And Ridley Scott really wanted to make a film about that great unasked question, which was, who are these space jockey characters that he set up in Alien. Mm. It was uh, something that nobody had asked since the first film or nobody wanted to ask and yet the fans had debated it at length ever since. And uh, it is an obvious question. Who are these space jockey creatures? But it also asks that further question. Are they better a a mystery, a mysterious fossilised character that we never really get to know? Or is he right in saying, let's make films about these characters? I mean, uh, I fall on the side of, yeah, I want to see more of these characters. I don't mind Ridley Scott providing answers to the mysteries posed by Alien as long as he creates mysteries of the same quality when he does so. And I think that's the problem with Prometheus is it doesn't know. It doesn't do that. No. no. The mysteries that it creates are far more obvious. Well, I think the main problem is that it thinks it's setting up mysteries, but it really isn't. No, yeah. There's no mystery to be had about these creatures i mean when you look at the commentaries like the engineers are so cut back in the theatrical edition 
And the only reason for that is that they thought that it would make them more mysterious, but in yes. fact it does the opposite because mm-hmm. they're reduced to the level of thugs. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. Which is such a shame when you know when we go into it and you see how much work they put into realizing these engineers as well. It's yeah. Just, in terms of their culture, oh, in yeah, terms of yeah. uh, their rituals as well, and all of it's on the cutting room floor. Yeah. It's reduced so far back. They've stripped those characters back too far. But yeah, it does seem to be the root of the problem is that just general uncertainty at the start Yeah, as to where we're going to go with this. What do we want to explore? I would say with the engineers themselves, in terms of what they did by stripping them back so far as to create mystery let's say, in inverted commas. What they have essentially done or achieved at the very end of that is all they've done is just change the aesthetic. So now all of a sudden we don't see an alien being when we look at the space jockey. Now we see this blue god. That's it. That's all that's changed. We don't get any further sense of character. No. They may as well just have left it as a fossilized alien giant yeah because we still know just about the same amount of them and i think that's also why to a lot of fans it did damage because at the end of the day they've answered this question and it's not that interesting Mm -hmm. but the really frustrating thing again is the fact it is interesting it's just on the cutting room floor yeah yeah and all that research and all that work has just gone to waste and that's the bit they really needed to focus on because that was the whole point of the film Mm -hmm. and um the only revelation we've had is that the space jockey just looks like uh, Jason Statham. Yeah. And that's it, really. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, so, I mean, going back to the context, so that was the question that Ridley Scott originally asked when him and James Cameron started pitching this idea to Fox originally back in 2002. And I think it was Tom Rothman, that oh, famous guy, Tom oh, Rothman, who our much, friend Tom. much loved on yeah. this podcast. Cherished. Um, yeah. <laughs> He turned Ridley Scott and James Cameron down to make Alien vs. Predator. Yeah. And that, as we say, is history. You can listen to that episode and our opinions of that film. And that's a long, well-remembered legacy. Yeah. It lasted two films. Yeah. Uh, And the second one we don't talk about at all. No, I mean, the second one you can barely see at all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess from then we have to move on to 2009. I mean, like we say, Alien vs. Predator Requiem came out after AVP because that was a modest success, let's say, Mm. within its budget bracket. And then Alien vs. Predator Requiem came out, made less money on a smaller budget, so it was just about turning a profit. But it was clear that the credibility for the series was just, like, flittering away. Yeah. And if they would have continued down that path, it would have made less and less money. And before long, it would have been like... We would have been in a situation with the Alien series, like... Um, direct to DVD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Direct to DVD, or even like Friday the Thirteenth, where it's um... in not space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to 2009, and Fox once again decided that this is time for us to actually make an Alien film, an honest to god Alien film. Yeah, and they actually returned to Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott and Tony Scott with their Scott Free Productions for ideas, like pitch or something, and they come back with what will become Prometheus. But originally, Ridley Scott was not intended to direct the film. No. It was going to be his son-in-law, Carl Rinsch... R-I-N-S-C-H? Rinsch? I don't know. Reinched? Reinched, yeah. Sorry about that. um, Who is um, a commercial director, much like Scott. He had created a couple of well-received shorts. Although Fox did not want him to direct. They wanted Ridley Scott. They wanted to really make this statement that we're 
chasing credibility here. We want to reclaim this franchise once more. And Ridley Scott does eventually take the director's chair. He does. Uh, I think they promised him that he would be able to finally explore the space jockey, and that's the thing that kind of put him into the uh, the driver's seat. He thought, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, I get, I get to do what I want now. And uh, Carl Rinch then went on to do the uh, well-received and well-loved 47 Ronin. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that one of the biggest box office flops of all time? Yeah, that was one of those films in which they had to do massive amounts of reshoots for. Which, you know, I I think this with these type of films. It was made for like $200 million. They originally shot it for about 150. million. And even then, at that point, they must have realized, oh, we're going to lose money with this film. Let's yeah. pump another 50 million into it. <laughs> just cut your losses. Yeah, just let it limp out there. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think as well, sometimes, all right, okay, sometimes you can save a film with these massive reshoots. Sometimes you can just about salvage something out of them. But I also think that you're throwing money into a fire yeah. by doing this. And you're also already creating the narrative for journalists to seize upon. Hmm. which is this was a troubled production and everybody loves to talk about a troubled production yeah at this point and i think it's around about the point when the alien anthology blu-ray comes out because there's a there's an introduction in the um in the booklet for that yeah when he's uh, talking about starting on his own alien prequel and at this point there is still an alien umbrella yes over it it's still an alien film mm-hmm I mean, I think it had like, what's the first, is it Alien Genesis and then Alien Engineers? That They had different title yeah. changes at the time. And um, yeah, that's it. And there, there are the two drafts out there that people can read of Alien Genesis and Alien Engineers. Mm. And You've read one of them, haven't you? I've read them both. Both, yeah. Yeah, I've read them both. I think I've read about four drafts of this film mm. in all. And I think another title that they actually toyed about with um, in pre-production was Alien Tomb of the Gods oh, right. as well, as, which is very Lara Croft Tomb raider to me. <laughs> yeah, Indiana Jones, that one, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. And yeah, so John Spates was actually mm-hmm. on board at that point as well. He was um, hired to write it based on a couple of unproduced sci-fi scripts that he had created. I imagine uh, Passengers would have been one yeah, of those. Passengers was one of them, and I think the other one was called Shadow 19. And yeah, the only yeah. other film that he had wrote at that point was The Darkest Hour, another yeah. well-received film there, yep. <laughs> which, again, was completely rewrote without his input whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's round about this point as well. Just uh, some time after the Alien anthology was released on Blu-ray, I remember that there was some all of a sudden some uncertainty about whether or not it was going to be an Alien film even at all. Yeah. And John Spates was being not fired as as a writer but somebody else was going to be hired to rewrite his script yeah, yeah. and perhaps tailor it into an original property mm. and i remember reading this and being horrified yeah. at the idea it's like oh yeah. don't don't do this to my alien film yeah and then damon lindelof was hired as a writer at following his success with lost and, and to be honest he does have some successes with lost but um ending it was not one of them no. <laughs> um that's the most disappointing two hours of tv yeah, uh, you watched the ending with me as well. I mean, I, I was disappointed and I, I didn't even watch Lost. <laughs> and I was like, that was a waste of my two hours, even if I hadn't seen the series. But yeah, so they brought Damon Lindelof on board and there was some trepidation about that, but people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But at that point, we weren't even sure it was going to be an alien film at all. And according to John Spates, I know that Ridley Scott on the documentary uh, often talks about him being 
very um, supportive of the idea to make it a more original property. John Spates, in an interview with Empire, actually says that the decision to take the series away from the Alien series, to strip it back of many of those alien connections, including having an actual xenomorph in it, or variations of the xenomorph in the film, actually came from the top, he says, from Fox, yeah. from above Ridley's head. And I have a feeling it actually came from Tom Rothman, yeah. who, um, as we talk about Prometheus and some of its flaws, he very heavily pursued Prometheus as a being a PG-13 rated film. Yeah. I think in order to achieve that, they would have had to strip it back of those alien elements because those alien elements are far more adult. They deal with adult themes. Uh, They deal with sexuality and stuff like that. And even stripping it back that far, they never did manage to achieve that. No. I mean, ultimately, the Alien franchise is not a... I'd say it's probably a teen-friendly franchise because I think that's roughly when people generally start getting into. Yeah. But I'm talking more sort of mid to late teens not yes yeah not when you're 12 i mean to be honest that's kind of part of the appeal of the alien franchise that it's it's it was always one of those franchises that was slightly it was a bit naughty to watch well i was just about to say that i watched aliens from a very young age i mean i always boast about the idea that i saw it when i was like five, <laughs> five years old or something it's like, like that. a rites of passage i just remember like when we were little and it's like oh i've seen terminator exactly i've seen yeah, alien exactly and it's like oh wow it's cool. like i've seen these films that are made for adults but can be enjoyed by kids on a very kind of like you know it, yeah. there was something naughty about it like we shouldn't be watching this but yeah. fucking hell look at it. it's great that guy's head just exploded yeah and it's like oh don't do a robocop 3 and yeah exactly but whenever studios decide to actually pander to kids with these R-rated franchises, they end up making Robocop free. Or... So it panders to no one because at the end of the day, it's been so watered down that the adults don't like it. Yeah. And uh, the kids don't like it either because you haven't got that danger factor. Exactly, yeah. So it just ends up occupying this no man's land. No. And Prometheus is a film that... I'd say very nearly occupies that no man's land. Mm. It just about gets away with it, but it very nearly occupies it. Yeah, and it's funny on the documentary, they talk about, oh, the decision of making art to PG-13 could mean hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's, I was like, yeah, you probably would have made less money if it was a PG-13 film. <laughs> I think time's shown the fact that they're still not getting into their heads that all you need to do is decide what this is for like who this is for and yeah. then commit to it and then you'll be fine. But when it goes wrong, it's when you fit a square peg into a round hole yeah. and it just won't fit. Yeah. And obviously that worked with Deadpool because they knew exactly who it was for. They marketed it to who it was for. They didn't water anything down and it worked. And the rewards are, yeah. are reaped from it. But with this film, I don't think they ever really decided who this was for. Yeah. They were just so unsure of to like what exactly, the and for this and the was. fact that they were shooting it with the two ratings in mind yeah. just shows the complete lack of vision or the complete lack of, I would say, a core decision's been missed there. And it's no surprise to me as well that actually these R-rated films from Fox have flourished once Tom Rothman <laughs> has left the ship. Yeah, And because, I mean, we've spoke about it before in the past, but Deadpool was a film that Tom Rothman prevented from ever going into production at his time at Fox. And um, he's always been one as well to keep Logan, to keep Wolverine back from his full potential in that way as well. Logan isn't a film that could have been made 
under Tom Rothman. No. X-Men Origins Wolverine is. Yeah. Okay, I mean, we might as well actually start talking about Prometheus. I think we've set it up yeah. as much as we can. We have spoke about the Alien series at length in previous episodes and in commentaries, and all of our listeners can have access to those episodes. Uh, so let's actually start talking about Prometheus and what we thought of it, because uh, up until this point in the recording... Uh, I'd say that we've been quite vocally negative about the experience of watching it, but I would say that it's just because it is a frustrating watch because so many of the fixes to Prometheus are so right in front of your eyes and so easy to fix. Yeah. There there are other flaws that are much harder, but uh, as we said before, just adding back a couple of those, a handful of those deleted scenes will go away to just adding a touch of consistency to it. But I want to talk about some of the things that Prometheus does right for a moment, because for me, I still come down on the side of the fence of it being a positive experience. And it's perhaps because I always approach Prometheus as not the return of Ridley Scott to the series. So not as a comparison to Alien, no, but rather as where the series has been previously, where it's languished. I mean, we talk about Alien Resurrection, AVP, and AVP Requiem, and not to mention the game Alien Colonial Marines. <laughs> and for me, at that point, Alien was a series without credibility. It's much like where the Terminator series is at now. Yeah. That's yeah. where the Alien series was at for me back then. And all I wanted was for it to stay dead for a while. And then they announced that Ridley Scott was going to be making a film, and suddenly it sparked interest in me. Mm. I was like, okay, I want to see what he's got in mind for us. And for all the faults that Prometheus has, and it's got a lot of nuts and bolts faults about it. Yeah. You know, some of the fundamentals are faulty. And I mean that on a structural level and on a character level, character consistency level. It just doesn't quite fit together. Yeah. But I really appreciate the ambition of making this type of film in the Alien series. I like the idea of trying to make an Alien film that perhaps leans less on the Xenomorph. I don't think that they should have had a Xenomorph thing in it like they do with the Deacon at the end of the film. Mm. I don't think that they should have had a Deacon in it without exploring where they could go with that. That's just one of the many questions that the film asks that it doesn't answer. It's like, what is this thing? We'll find out next time on... Prometheus too. You know, it's, yeah. I think that just leaves audiences with blue balls. Yeah. I think if you're going to have an alien in it, it's got to be an alien film. If not, really ramp up exploring these engineers. Maybe add some more hideous monsters, some Geiger-esque monsters, you know. And I like the ambition to try and do that. I think it's a brave thing to do with the series, to take it in that direction. And uh, I really appreciated that at the time and really responded to it well. I mean, some of the writers might not have, um, specifically Lindelof, might not have the talent to pull it off, but mm. the ambition of those involved is uh, next to none, really, to make a film of this scale and that climate as well. Yeah, I, I say I have no problems with the ambitions of it. I just think it's a shame that they didn't replace what they jettisoned with something that was more compelling. Yes. I think that's why people feel like cheated that there's no aliens in it like it is a tease because it's like well you got rid of that for this yeah and um i think that's the general mm-hmm. feeling of it yeah and also i feel like um at a writing stage and you can tell during the pre-production segment of the documentary that they seem to be really into the design and the life cycles of these creatures mm-hmm. and the environment and everything and that is all brilliant i mean that's the stuff that stands out on a visual sense yeah but they don't seem to either know or spend enough time and care on how the 
actual characters integrate with all these things. Yeah. And I think that's the ultimate failing of the film because the real weakness of the film is in its characters yeah how they are developed and also in some of the casting i think as well i can't disagree with you in terms of the character inconsistencies that there are in the film and them being one of the weakest elements of it one of the ways in which people often say about looking at the film as to kind of excuse that is it's like oh you have to approach prometheus as a slasher film where the character films are bait. And I said, like, oh, I get that. I get that because there is a body horror film as well. But that isn't the film that Prometheus itself is trying to set itself up as with these characters. It's not making the statement that it is a slasher film. No. It has slasher film elements, sure. But it's not saying that it is a slasher film. It's saying that it is a complex science fiction epic yeah it wants to be somewhere in the realms of 2001 exactly yeah that's where its ambitions lie Mm. and i do agree with you that by and large the characters are very hit and miss and when they miss they miss hard but one character hits and hits so hard that it utterly saves a film for me yeah yeah and that character is david yeah and uh, the character of david is the best character that we've had in alien films i would say uh, of this kind of complexity this duality i would say since uh probably ash in alien yeah um, yeah and, and i think that's prometheus's saving grace for me and uh, it's all about whether or not you can overlook so much of the previous character inconsistencies for him and i probably can just about but again it's so fr- it is a frustrating experience to know that you are capable of creating david and yet in the same breath, we have Holloway and Shaw. Who, and Fifield. And Fifield and <laughs> yeah. Milburn. Oh, especially Fifield and Milburn. In the yeah. same breath. Yeah. You feel like all of the work's gone on one character and the rest have just fallen to the wayside. Yeah. And I, I again, it's a, it's a matter of credit where credit's due. Lindelof is not a writer who I particularly enjoy, even though he's apparently enjoying success with the leftovers which is in its last series let's see if he uh, can stick the landing this time <laughs> but he's not a writer who i particularly enjoy anymore or i particularly follow um his flaws are obvious to me but the thing that seems to be being held over the most from prometheus is one of his characters because mm. i read the john spates draft and it is a script that i would describe as being both stronger and just as flawed as Damon Lindelof's draft. Mm. It's structurally much more solid. It's probably a a lot more tonally consistent throughout, but it's got, I'd say, double the amount of characters. There are a lot more red shirts in his film, and once the action kicks off, much like Damon Lindelof's script as well, once the action kicks off, it kind of completely falls apart. Mm. Once the actual alien stuff starts happening, it is such a mess. But one of the things that John Spate's character's that is a, a real disappointment is david because yeah. david is a, a mustache twirling villain in his draft <laughs> he monologues whilst cradling a face hugger as if it's a kitten at one point it's, it's described <laughs> as as doing as he's monologuing to sure about his evil evil plans and one of the things that damon lindelof did was came in and recognized that there was uh, much more potential with that character to create a character that's far more complex and he succeeded in that he created a brilliantly fleshed out new character for the series and that's about the only thing that he did right i mean (laughs) the only thing yeah i mean also you can't underestimate the uh the contribution that fassbender himself 
would have made to that character and how oh, he's played definitely. and everything. Um, I would defy anyone to say that David isn't a great creation in the film. Yeah. And he's generally one of the only things that's brought out of the film as a positive. And you are right that a lot of it does rest on Michael Fassbender as well. Because, I don't know, he manages to take lines that... One of the issues with Prometheus is so many of these great actors are given lines that are so clunky to say that they can't help but land with a dull, wet thud. Yeah. And yet, Michael Fassbender finds a way to say them in a way that just fits his character. Like, there are lines that he says, like, for instance, uh, doesn't everyone want to see their parents dead? And it's like, oh, that's such a shit line, but he manages to make it land. Yeah. I mean, the film's full of those lines, isn't it? It really yeah. is full of clunky dialogue. He finds a way to make it compelling and not embarrassing. Is it because Damon Lindelof writes everybody as talking like a robot? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe that's just the issue. Maybe it's just his dialogue sounds like it's coming from a robot all the fucking time. Yeah. The thing I find interesting is what lines they decide to leave and what lines they decide to take out. Yeah. There's much better dialogue in some of the deleted scenes than are actually in the film. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is strange, because you'd think, rationally, that it would be the other way around, but... Yeah, for instance, the scene in which Vickers approaches Wayland and they have their conversation in his bedroom, it's much better yeah. in yeah. the deleted scene than it is in the final version. Yeah. I think the only thing that's missing is that um, a king has his reign and then he dies. I think that's missing. Yeah. That's the only yeah. bit. And, and they hung the trailers along that line, didn't they? Still has the shitty father bit at the end. Oh, yeah, and that, that is... Oh. It's a real groaner. Do you know what? I think that line is born out of... Obviously, Damon Lindelof has probably watched Blade Runner one night and going, oh, yeah, I want more life, Father. I'll stick that in, Father. Yes, yeah. It feels like that's you know, what they're it, going it for. Definitely, I guess we can see those Blade Runner references as well in the documentary. In one of the enhancement pods, they talk about how they were going to have one of the security guards as a Roy Batty synthetic. <laughs> At one point, they toyed with the idea of having Rutger Hauer as one of the um, the security guards. And <laughs> that was briefly toyed with right. at one point, just to tie those universes together. Because that's something that Ridley Scott was looking at. Prometheus came out at a time where everybody, everybody was clambering for the next shared universe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, perhaps they wanted to do a Blade Runner alien crossover, Ooh. which would have not worked. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've not watched any of those deleted scenes, I would uh, I would invite you to pick up the blu-ray and uh, and watch them because it's uh, mm. i mean some of them are obvious deleted scenes but quite a lot of them are like why is this not in the film yeah because it's so obvious that it's a better scene than what they yeah. left in i mean the most obvious one is the vickers yannick scene in her quarters it does two jobs it makes both the characters three-dimensional it makes vickers more human you get to know much more about yannick his backstory and also ultimately it explains why he does what he does at the end of the film. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yet they replace it with a rather goofy character scene, which is all about playing accordions and getting laid. Yeah, pretty much. You can see it's because at, at some point they decided, oh, these characters are coming across as too cold, specifically Vickers. We need a scene in which he's a little bit more endearing and softer to us. Mm. But essentially, the whole crux of the scene is to simply get Yannick out of the room yeah. so that something bad can happen to Milburn and Fifield. I mean, Milburn and Fifield, as characters, they exist to really act out the want of the writer from scene to scene. Is They're just there to move things on bit by bit. They're never consistent as characters. And Yannick is much the same way in this scene because everything to that point has led us to believe that he's a good captain. 
he's faithful to his crew kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And in this one scene, he decides to just simply leave the bridge to go bang some woman in his in a room for a while while something terrible happens to them. And yet he never references the fact that it could have happened when he was too busy trying to get his end away. Yeah, and yet it feels like such a... I mean, is it a reshoot? I don't know. It fe- I, it's never referenced again. Yeah. That whole them sleeping together is never referenced again. It feels like a reshoot. Yeah. It does feel like it was reshot to replace what you said comes later, yeah. that scene about the containment uh, the containment flashback thing. And it's much better. And the only reason they gave to get rid of it was our uh, effects pacing at that point in the film. Yes, pretty much, yeah. I'm just like... Ugh. Yeah, there's, there's it brings so much more credibility and integrity to yeah. those characters as well. And also, considering how much they fuck up pacing elsewhere, it's just like, you're not justified in that statement at all. No. If you watch the deleted scenes with the commentary, and it's just like, no, 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 yeah. no, no, what the fuck are you doing? You don't understand your own film. Yes. It's like, oh, you've got so lost in this, it's just, you don't understand what's important, what isn't important. Mm-hmm. The film reads like a first draft, and it feels like it's written like a first draft who's not planned correctly. Yeah. So you've got, instead of having characters that dictate actions, mm-hmm. and the story's driven by the decisions of the characters for their character, Yeah. the situation's been manufactured artificially. Yeah, yeah. So the, the characters have to do things because that's what the story wants them to do. Mm-hmm. rather than the characters go I want to go right because that's what my personality is dictating Yeah, which is why you get all these inconsistencies with the characters as well because mm-hmm. they're being pushed and pulled in all sorts of exactly, different yeah. directions to make the story work the, the way the writer wants it to that is never better embodied in this film than with Fifield yeah. specifically as well because he's a character that when he should turn left the writer makes him turn right yeah. I mean, we see it almost scene by scene from his entrance to the temple. I yeah. mean, we see that from outside the temple, he's scared to enter. He, he's worried about what's going to be at the other side. And the next time we see him in the temple, he's howling like a dog and throwing his little gadgets about and seems to be fucking loving it. And then the next time we see him, he's back to being shit scared again. Yeah. And uh, running away. And it's like, it baffles me how yeah. that managed to get through so many people to the final product yeah and the same goes for Milburn as well to probably to a more subtler extent but you have scenes where he's really excited about finding new species i mean there's even a deleted scene when they find a little yeah. species and he's so excited about it and then at other times when the script requires him to be scared it's like oh ship's good place I, to go i never get why Milburn does go with fifield as well no and also, Fifield getting lost. Is, uh, to take it further as well, Fifield is the character that has mapped out the entire temple. He's the one that's in charge of that thing. Yep. And yet he is the one, with all of that technology, that still manages to go missing, that still manages to get himself lost, even with all of that tech. And it's never referenced why. Yeah. And uh, to talk about Fifield as well, that Fifield monster, the version that you see in the film, if you watch the deleted scene, you can see that they decided to go with something far more monstrous and far more alien as well. He was literally a monster in yeah. the deleted scenes. Like You get an example that the goo turns people into alien-like monsters, uh, yeah. like the xenomorph-like monsters. It's clearly been distilled from some kind of xenomorph background, this, this substance. Yeah. And... Uh, I think that fate should have been reserved for Holloway because I, yeah. in a second I want to actually start talking specifically about the characters and the actors. Mm. But one of the things I, about Holloway is he's a very unlikable character 
And uh, he is in the John Spates draft as well. He's a somewhat unlikable character, but that's the point of him. And he kind of pays for his bullheadishness in terms of his pursuit of these makers. I, because Lindelof changes the character, he doesn't give him as hard of a fate anymore. Whereas in the Spates draft, the chest burst literally bursts out of him during sex. And it's this squid monster thing, much but a little bit more alien-like. And uh, I have a feeling if they would have made the Fifield monster Holloway, if that would have been his fate, it would have been far more impactful for it to happen to that character that that's how he finds out his answers. You know, he's somebody that's pissed that he found his gods and they're dead. And then he himself is literally turned into like an alien yeah, like yeah. As, as a result of it. That's his price for seeking these answers. And it would have been far more impactful if Elizabeth Shaw would have been the person that had to put him down. Yeah. His whole shtick is very weak anyway. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's in the Honest Trailer, actually. I mean, I'm not a fan of Honest Trailers, just for what they represent. But there is a funny bit in the Prometheus Honest Trailer, I'm pretty sure, where like Holloway gets pissed after only being there for like six hours. Yeah. like that. And it's like, yeah. you're pissed that your gods are dead, but you've been in a couple of rooms in that massive, huge fuck-off temple. There are like and, four temples behind it as well. And it's already proven later after you're dead that there's some alive anyway. So the whole arc of that character is bollocks in a really bad way as well Mm -hmm. again it's that whole going back to characters being robots and yeah yeah and fulfilling what the plot wants them to rather than making their own decisions and even talking about the characters for a moment as well and the actors specifically i mean this film has a great cast yeah of actors that are putting in some strange performances and one of them in fact i think i have to talk about is numi rapace who is an actress that i really like she was great in girl with the dragon tattoo and i really liked her in the drop which was an american film that saw her putting on an american accent and getting away with it whereas this film requires her for some reason to be english to be an english rose of a character and yet Mm. she is failing that accent every step of the way yeah it's in one part because the dialogue is incredibly clunky but also because the accent doesn't suit her. And I have no idea why at any point they just didn't go with her being from somewhere in Scandinavia. Yeah, she's so obviously Scandinavian and yeah, exactly. European. And also the thing that makes it even worse is when they have that little like dream flashback when they hire the most English-sounding girl oh. to be her as a young... And they even try and get Patrick Wilson to do an English accent. It's like, why are you trying to push this yeah. when it just ain't going? Yeah, exactly. There's no point trying to push it. I have a feeling. I, again, it's another one of those things. Maybe it's even a cynical decision that, oh, if we make this character this kind of background or we will lose territories because i remember as well one of the people that really got tested for the role was also Gemma arterton yeah and i think that's who fox wanted them to cast yeah yeah uh, wanted him to cast but he stuck steadfast with Naomi rapace and i can see why because well, she is the better actress she is the yeah she is the better actress and I, i've seen a couple of good performances from Gemma arterton recently as well which um, the girl with all the gifts and she was fantastic mm. in that but I think Numi Rapace is a better actress in terms of especially physicality because that's what Numi Rapace does bring to this role as well. Mm. It is a physical performance. And, I mean, we talk about that scene, the med pod scene. It requires her to be very physical and she fucking nails it. Yeah. And she sells each violent moment in that scene. I mean, I spoke about this before we started recording. This is a film, an imperfect film, with a handful of perfect scenes in it. Mm. And that, for me, is one of them. 
everything comes together. And it's like, you've got this actress who is capable of giving such a strong physical performance, and yet you are sullying her with this dead accent, this lifeless accent that's thudding against our ears. It's grating. Why not just let her be herself? Like, let her have her own accent, because it would land so much easier. Yeah. Maybe some of the lines that feel clunky wouldn't be so clunky coming out of her original accent. That goes for quite a lot of the characters anyway, where they're like, that title was written for a different accent originally, and yeah. they've not decided to adapt the line. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, why did you go with that actor if you wanted that particular kind of thing as well? Yeah. Casting everything aside, like the dialogue and whatnot, but in terms of the character arc, one of my issues with her is that when the film ends, she's still asking the same questions that she had at the beginning. There isn't much of an arc other than she's being punished for asking those questions. Yeah. And I guess that harkens back to, like, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which uh, this is... Prometheus plays very heavily on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I mean, I think that was called Prometheus Unbound or something like that as well, (laughs) uh, that book. Uh, Oh, it was called A Modern Prometheus. That was yeah. it. The mod- Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, I think, is the title of the original book. This plays more heavily into that, and she kind of takes on that role as well. She is the one that's asking questions that she shouldn't be asking, and she's being punished for it, but by the time the film ends, she's still asking them. Mm. She's still asking those questions. What's changed about that character, other than the, the fact that she's even more determined now to find out why she's being punished? I mean, that's the whole film in a nutshell, and like the arc... The question at the start of the film is still the same question that they're asking at the end of the film. Yeah. It's like, where did they try to kill us? And that's why it feels half a film. Yeah. And that's why for me as well, I'm still very much on board with this film for two thirds of it until probably the point that Holloway dies or perhaps even just to push it a little bit further, the med pod scene. I'm normally on board right up until that point, but it normally gets very frustrating after that because the action starts happening. It moves at such a pace. It's very clumsily put together. The editing is awful. And uh, before you know it, the film's over and it hasn't delivered on any of the questions that it's asked. I think if you put in some of those deleted scenes, some of the scenes with the engineers and stuff like that, I'm thinking, oh, well, at least I would have got an idea of the engineer's culture and the engineer's characters and the thought process. And some of those thematic arcs would have paid off as well Mm. in a lot more satisfying way, especially with regard to the relationship between David and Wayland and this engineer. All of that stuff would have paid off so much more. That's a great, so much more impact. That's a great deleted scene as well. The whole crux of the original scene is the fact that the engineer is punishing his creation mm-hmm. for thinking that he was up to his level. Because yeah. the idea is that Wayland is saying, I've created David, uh, you created me, so we're pretty much on equal playing fields. So what the engineer does is decapitates David and kills Wayland with his own creation. Yes. And that's like poetic justice. Yeah, it is, yeah. For thinking that he could be so arrogant and that's the whole idea of hubris. And the fact that that's not there anymore. Yeah. Just for reasons of... On the commentary, Pietro Scalia, who's a fucking... Oh, if I ever see him, Jesus (laughs) fucking Christ. You took out that scene, which is so important to what's going on right now, just because you didn't want the engineer to say anything because you thought yeah. it would be more mysterious by not saying anything I'd go doing anything. I'd go one step further and to say that that scene on the cutting room floor is the heart of the film. Yeah. It comes yeah. to just encapsulate what that film's specifically about. Yeah. And I think with that scene in, and with a couple of the other ones as well, but with that scene in specifically, and the scene that follows with the engineer confrontation with Elizabeth Shaw on Lifeboat, I think... 
those two scenes provide Prometheus with a lot more meaning, a lot more thematic um, closure as well. Mm. Coming towards the end, it still would have had flaws. It still would have been asking a lot of the same questions and that wouldn't have gone away. It would have still felt like, in many ways on a story level, it still would have felt like half a film that promised more than it delivered. But at least it would have been structurally a lot more sound. At least it would have been a lot more consistent. And at least thematically it would have paid off. Yeah, I think you would have felt a lot more satisfied. Yeah. And I guess before we actually uh, start wrapping up on Prometheus as well, and just in terms of our thoughts, I want to bring it back round to some positives once more. Because mm. again, this is a film in which I do still fall on. I, I, I could talk about what doesn't work about the film all day and gladly will do. <laughs> um, because I love getting to the heart of what does and doesn't work with a film. But I also want to really get into what does work. And one of the other things I think that we really haven't spoke about, or at least briefly spoke about, we spent a lot of the time speaking about the writing of the film and how the failures are in the writing of the film and the editing of the film, obviously. But let's not overlook just how well realized this world is how good this film looks all the stuff in the middle production and design is spectacular yeah, yeah, you it's, said, it's very very good yeah i think it's next and on it feels like old-fashioned filmmaking in many ways because it's dealing with real sets and real environments and really scott is i mean to say that even when he made this film he was what 75 he is still next to none in terms of delivering scale for me yeah. uh, and scope. I also love the scene with the holographic um, planets. Yeah. It's another perfect scene in an imperfect movie. And Prometheus is full of these scenes that just really work, that really deliver. I love the opening scene with the engineer on the waterfall as well. I think the deleted scene goes even a step further as to showing the culture of those beings. But yep. I still like it as it is. Yeah, and obviously the all the uh, the David stuff on his own yeah. is great. Yeah, anytime David's on his own, a film is what it should be. Yeah. And because on an emotional level, on a visceral level, this film does deliver in many respects. There are scenes in it that will, um, that will deliver something for you. It's just a shame that it fails on the fundamentals, I guess. Mm-hmm. I remember when I, I first saw that scene, you know, all the stuff at the beginning with David on his own. In context of the film, that it feels so out of place because I remember watching it and going, oh, this is going to be such a great film. Mm. Um, it's getting to that sort of 2001 level. And um, I don't feel like they really deliver on that promise of how they set David up at the start. I mm-hmm. feel like it's so uh, cerebral, especially with all the stuff when he's watching Lawrence of Arabia and oh, everything. Oh, man, yeah. And it's like, yeah, those first few scenes, and it's just like, the, the, wow, this yeah, is going to yeah, be incredible. Exactly. And then, unfortunately, just the wheels start falling off the cart. Again, the film looks amazing throughout. I mean, you can't fault Darius Wolski, especially the fact they had to film it in 3D as well and all the problems that come with that. And yeah. it still looks great. There's nothing really gimmicky in the film like to be, hey, we're being 3D. Yeah. 3D. Um, I mean, there's lots of great depth of field stuff, color contrasts and everything. The Red Epic is not my favourite camera. I feel like it ruined the Hobbit, the Hobbit for me. Films, but yeah. I feel like this is probably the best use of that camera. But mm-hmm. um, even so, I mean, I still think they did a good job with it. And obviously Arthur Max's production design. I mean, I do have the art of book for Prometheus as well. And there's a remarkable amount of brilliant artistry that went into realizing this world. And a lot of it does show because this world is rich in a visual sense. But also, I feel like because of that, that lens this engineer culture 
a lot more depth than the film provides them with as in its yeah. current form because yeah. I want to know more about the mural that's hanging in the wall and why it is got a xenomorph at the center of it. Yeah. I ask all these questions and it, it, the film wants me to ask these questions and you know what those are the right mysteries to leave your film with but to leave so many of the big questions unanswered is uh, yeah. is unforgivable. And that's the other point of annoyance is that how much of these things have been wasted on the film like you've got some you know brilliant production design Brilliant cinematography, brilliant sound, really great music, great creature design and creature effects, Mm -hmm. brilliant set building, everything like that. And it's all wasted for a large part on this uh, less than compelling script and story that is so surface level. Yeah. Well, I mean, even a story, I would say that there's a story there. It's more so that these aren't the characters to bring it to life. No, no. I get the story to and try again, and tell. It, and I think, yeah, there's a story, but it's still only half a story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I, does that play into the idea that, I mean, at one point they did want to make Prometheus a dual film, two films filmed back to back at a $250 million budget. Right. And uh, that was one of Ridley Scott's original ideas was to film two alien prequels. Yeah. I think he was caught up in the whole Hobbit thing at that point. Yeah. But Fox did not like the idea of pumping $250 million into a alien film or two no. alien films, not knowing if it would pay off. Yeah. But I think that is kind of what makes it hurt more. Yeah. Is because when you get a shitty film like AVP, it's a shitty film. It's not good on yeah. many levels. Whereas when you've got a film like this, which is a, a sort of prestige film, yeah, it's not a trashy film and it looks great. You've hired brilliant actors. Everything's top notch, A level. And uh, it's let down by a, a sort of B-grade script. Yeah. It's more annoying than, than yeah, just seeing it, a trashy film. And it's because, in many ways, I mean, even on a script level, it's probably not as... It's nowhere near the type of script that, like, AVP no, is or no. anything like that. It's just <laughs> There's that, no characters in it's that It's just film. that it's below. It's below the grade of what yeah. the rest of the film is. That's why it makes it a frustrating experience, and that's why people talk about it in such a way. Because... Actually, this is still a film that, in my opinion, is above average. This is Mm -hmm. still a film that I still come down positively on, but it's because it could be so much more. Mm. And I say this probably with a couple more drafts from a more seasoned writer to come in and just bring it home, Yeah, you know, to take probably the best of both John Spate's world and Damon Lindelof's and fuse them in a more satisfying way i mean perhaps even give john spates a second go around see what he could do with you know say we brought lindelof into he's wrote this it's in many ways it's improved but in other ways it's can you bring it around Mm. but it's i don't know it just needed like somebody else to come in and just say and just bring it home and it's not often i advocate for bringing in a third writer on a project yeah or maybe even just a really good script doctor yeah, it's not really made explicit in the documentary, but it f- seems to me that Lindelof may have been brought in a bit too late on in the process, and they ran out of time with exploring uh, that, that, that new is, area. And that that is the like case. They, they got green lit based on a half finished. No, that that is absolutely the case. I meant to mention that earlier, but um, when Lindelof was actually brought on board, the film had already been pushed back a couple of times whilst mm. Fox was still trying to figure out what the film was and i think when ridley scott brought lindelof on board he was really posing fox the ultimatum of all right you either make this film or i'm going to make another film as he usually does yeah yeah because he's a director that likes to be constantly working and they greenlit it based on damon Lindelof's um treatment uh, treatment (laughs) essentially and um as a writer he was there every day on set Mm. writing the script along with it yeah i mean 
you can read a couple of his drafts that uh, do stick close to what the film is, but he's we're still there writing dialogue day to day. I would say one thing though is uh, his scripts are incredibly hard to read. They yeah. are headache inducing <laughs> because it seems like every other word is capitalized. It's like a 13 year old wrote it. Yeah. All the bad things you read about in screenwriting books of do's and don'ts. Yeah. His scripts are basically all the don'ts. Pretty much, yeah. He's not um, an unrelated screenwriter. He's basically a friend of a yeah, friend of I, I this read, group of exactly. people. Exactly, yeah. I read that he was involved with the old Aussie Kurtzman, J.J. Uh, Abrams group of, yeah. of individuals. That that's how he actually uh, came to be involved in Lost. And it explains an awful lot. Yeah. If John Spates had written a script in that style, there's no fucking way that he'd be. Exactly, he'd yeah. even be in the yeah. room having a meeting with Ridley yeah. Scott. And he even mentioned in the documentary that they brought on Lindelof because perhaps he was just a bit of a bigger name. And Spates had already been told that at some point in the production, yeah. Yeah. a bigger name writer would come in to bring it home just to have their name on the poster. Lindelof was the name that they wanted on their poster. Yeah, he was just like the in vogue person at the time, which is like it's not a it's not a reason to hire him. No, but again, for all his faults. Still one of the best oh, yeah. characters in the series. Yeah. And I hope we get to see a more fleshed out version in the future. I hope we do get to see that extended cut because I do think it's there. There is something better than it is there. And right now, it's just a frustratingly close, but mm. no cigar. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've battled with this alien prequel, it's time for us to start asking the real questions. <laughs> what did critics and audience make of this body horror movie? Did they burst with adoration, or did we find that on the internet, everyone can hear you complain? <laughs> First <laughs> up, we have the critics. Uh, now, this has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 72%. It is a certified fresh film, mm-hmm. which again is no surprise. It's following on from AVP and AVPR. I mean, compared to those films, it's a jump in the right direction. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just still a far cry away from where a prestige alien film should be. When you compare it to the best of the Alien series, it's still below what it should be at. Mm. So yeah, as a 72% rating and an average rating of 6.9 out of 10. And that's after 278 reviews. And uh, the general consensus is that Ridley Scott's ambitious quasi-prequel to Alien may not answer all of its big questions, but it's redeemed by its haunting visual grandeur and compelling performances, particularly Michael Fassbender as a fastidious android. And uh, yeah, I'd say that critics' consensus is probably about right. It doesn't really get into the well, the character inconsistencies and stuff no. like that. But it's ne- it's never going to in the no. critics' consensus. But the audience score is actually surprisingly on the positive side of things. It has sixty eight percent, with an average score of three point six out of five. I mean, it's not at alien levels, which I think is somewhere in the nineties. Yeah, but um, it's still actually firmly within uh, the fresh meter. Not so fresh, or I'd say more middling as a review. Um, Empire awarded the film 3 out of 5. And this is a review from Ian Nathan, who I know actually wrote the Alien Vault book as <laughs> well. So he is somebody that is something of a Alien diehard fan. Yeah. And he said, In its entirety, the film struggles to find a central strand on which to hang on. The horrific magnificence of both Alien and Aliens is their directness. They are primal thrillers and questions of life in the universe tend to go on the back burner when you've got a xenomorph chewing on your face. What's worse, the endoskeleton is in view. 
Here are the unmistakable bones of its previous incarnation as the nailed-on Alien prequel. There are elements of the unfolding squelchiness that feel like feeble rewrites of Alien attributes. An egg-sized ampule, a vaginomorph tentacle playing a facehugger, a whole strand of creature nastiness that has our old xenomorphic favourite written all over it. Scott didn't want the cliché, but you do sure miss him. I, I mean, I'd say there is definitely an element to that. I do like some of the creatures that they create here, but... I feel like it's the issue that I mentioned earlier, which is if you're going to have a xenomorph in the film, you might as well have a fucking xenomorph in the film and really... Or don't have one at all. Uh, and really follow it through. Or exactly, don't have one at all. Because actually this film is hints at it all the way through. This is one of the things that doesn't pay off. And why I was sat in a theatre and me and many of my alien nerds, much like yourself, are sat there watching this film and it's got all the hallmarks of the alien in it. Yeah, the ampule room is basically the egg chamber. It's the egg chamber. And um, in fact, one of the unused ideas for the original Alien, one point they actually rewrote it so that the egg chamber was an ampule room mm. and then wrote it back again. And really, Scott just has kept that idea for Prometheus. And another thing is we see the other engineer pods that um, our hero engineer is in. We mm. see the other ones around them and they're all burst out of like they've been chest bursted, like the people, the engineers that were infected in it have had something burst out of them. And then we see that collection of engineers and they all like, uh, like say something's burst out of them. Mm. The whole film hints at this big revelation. It seems to be driving towards this revelation that the xenomorph is at the center of what happened here. And it never, it doesn't deliver on that. Yeah. It just doesn't deliver on it. I get the feeling when you watch the pre-production documentary, I feel that there's almost like a, there's like reverence to it, but almost like, arrogance that they can come up with something that's better when the original alien design is i don't think you can come up with anything that's mm. that's that is like the ultimate monster no, yeah yeah well there is an arrogance here but i think you have to have a certain degree of arrogance yeah. to, to decide to because uh, again it's the ambitions of them i appreciate that they're trying to do something different or uh, trying to do something beyond i like the idea of somebody coming in and saying okay I want to take this, but do something more with it to mm. go beyond it. And I do think you need a certain degree of arrogance to go about that, but you'd better be sure it pays off. Yeah, Because in a way, actually, if you watch the Alien documentary, when they're talking about the design of that film, yeah. when they had some of the other designers come up with their ideas for what the Alien should look like, some of them look very similar to some of the Prometheus stuff that mm -hmm. they have. And it's like, have you not watched that documentary, Ridley? Yeah. Ridley's like, oh yeah, I can come up with something better, better, better. And it's like... You've created things that are just analogs of things that are the cliches. Like yeah. you say, it keeps going on about it being fresh, and it's like it's not fresh. You you basically just reinvented the egg room. Yeah. If you wanted to be fresh, you don't have that at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's kind of partly the why. Again, we called it at the start alien dictees because it's yeah, like yeah. all these things that we know, but without the cool stuff. Yes, <laughs> like, in yeah. a way. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with some of the creatures. It's just. I just feel like it doesn't go deep enough into any of these things. Yeah. For instance, you could have hung an entire film around the trilobite alone. If it had been more sort of, we're doing the body horror thing, because mm -hmm. really it's a very tame body horror it film. Is, it's, it, at its core, Prometheus is a body horror film. With its balls locked off. Yeah, pretty much because they're in pursuit of this PG-13 yeah. rating. 
And that ultimately harms it because, again, it makes the monsters not feel as impactful as they should be. Because yeah. they are. And that's it. I'm not taking anything away from the design of the creatures. It's just because it is dealt with in such a limp way. It's like... Oh, this and is they're something. limited in their capabilities yeah. and what they can show of them. I mean, uh, the thing is, hats off to them, though, for trying to create a monster that's just uh, covered in vaginas. <laughs> yeah. You know? Massive I, vagina I, Massive vaginas and dicks. <laughs> vagina squid. Yeah. But... One of the scenes that I do like in terms of the monsters is um, I like the Mill Burnham Fivefield scene. Yeah, with yeah. The um, I mean, I hate the setup. <laughs> yeah, uh, everybody hates the setup. It doesn't make any sense even in this current form. It makes slightly more sense with the deleted scene, but it doesn't make any sense that Milburn would be fawning all over this cobra esque penis monster, penis <laughs> butthole monster. Um, <laughs> but I like the imagery of it forcing itself into his mouth. This is, again, me going back to why Prometheus is a step in the right direction yeah. as well. It's because it's using these images of sexuality and turning them on their heads again. Yeah. And we're seeing a character uh, very vividly have this penis monster forced down his throat. Yeah. It's like, it was wrong to watch, but I, I, like that scene makes my skin crawl. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I, to be honest, that little sequence... It kind of has the same harshness that the earlier Alien films has, like yeah. when it breaks his arm and it goes yeah. in his mouth and everything. And it's like, it needed to be more like that throughout mm-hmm. with the body horror stuff. It needed to be a bit more brutal. Yeah, what it was doing, like because the arm breaks, brilliant. I really like them. The, the practicalness of they when they show you in the documentary. Yeah, the, the arm breaks cool. Again, I think it would have. It would have totally had more impact as a body horror film if the five field scene. Again, was one if you change the characters Holloway, but even if it was just given its own scene to exist rather than being just tagged onto the end of the med pod scene. Yeah. If it was given the chance to have more impact, that five field scene could have been a real impactful showcase for the whole body horror elements of the film. Yeah. Like we were saying before, it doesn't help that it's intercut with Shaw walking down the corridor disorientated. Yeah. And it feels like much more like an afterthought background thing. And we haven't even mentioned about the characters that die in that oh, scene that yeah. reappear in the so, following scene. This is another major part of my edit, and we'll go back to the critics in a minute. Yeah. And there's a thing in the documentary about it in the post-production where the Fifield attack happens much later in the script and the in the original edit, as is in the final version of the film, just because they felt it was a bit too much in the place that it was. Yeah. And uh, I think the studio wanted an action scene sooner. But it harms the film so much in the fact that there's a lot of these background characters that are like the uh, company stooges, really. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of these characters are killed in this sequence. But because they didn't sort this out in the scripting stage, a lot of the characters that are killed in this sequence magically appear alive again two scenes later. Like, literally, like 30 seconds later, yeah. they're standing full of well and alive. For a big-budget film like this, it's probably one of the most obvious continuity goofs I've ever seen. Yeah. It's awful. I remember when I saw the film for the first time, not knowing that that happened, I was like, there's an awful lot of people on this ship. Yeah, we <laughs> spoke about it afterwards, and I remember you saying that you were like, there were a lot of people on the Prometheus ship, weren't there? Like, it yeah. seemed that there were a lot of, <laughs> lot of, a lot more people than you thought. And it was only until afterwards we realized why. And it's because characters that are supposed to be killed off then reappear scenes later and then disappear yeah, yeah. scenes after that. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure the guy that gets his face bashed in yeah. at the start of the attack sequence and then the guy that gets the axe in the back, both of them are clear in shot yes. in the following scenes. And one of the security guards as well that yeah. runs out and starts firing at him, yeah. him and his mate. So there's about three characters there. 
that appear in the following scene. And all because they just wanted to move the scene for such a, a stupid, weak reason. Yeah. It adds further harm to the film, and that's just one of the many things that they did to the film. Mm-hmm. And it, again, that's why I get so frustrated with this film, <laughs> because the fixes are so simple in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Just on a basic film level, they've created more problems for themselves. And they're fixable. Okay, so my next review is a, <laughs> is a, an incredibly positive one from Roger Ebert, who gave the film four out of four, and he says, Ridley Scott's Prometheus is a magnificent science fiction film, all the more intriguing because it raises questions about the origin of human life and doesn't have the answers. Uh. It's in the classic tradition of golden age sci-fi, echoing Scott's alien, but creating a world of its own. I'm a pushover for material like this, is a seamless blend of story, special effects, and pitch-perfect casting, filmed in sane, effective 3D that doesn't distract. I mean, I get that about the 3D. One one of the things about this film is nothing flies out the camera at you yeah, yeah. or anything like that. It's never done in an obvious way. But actually, some of the things that Ebert describes as positives, I would describe as negatives, much yeah. like it leaving so many questions unanswered. Um, and pitch-perfect casting. <laughs> and pitch-perfect casting being another one. But um, I also do agree that with him that I am also a pushover for material like this, but more so in terms of Ridley Scott's world building, more so much as what the Mm. film is dealing with thematically, and more so what they managed to achieve with not many of the characters, but David specifically. Mm. And to move on, the IMDb score for this film is another positive 7 out of 10. So um, nobody other than Roger Ebert is falling over themselves to heap praise on this film, but um, I would say that this doesn't really reflect the worst kind of criticisms that this film has received. And if you do go on the Alien forums, you will find many people debating this film at length as to whether or not it is a masterpiece or a failure. And uh, in my opinion, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's a noble failure. It's not a. It's it not is, a disaster. It's a film that I described when I first saw it, even in a positive light. I described it as an admirable mess. And I still yeah. stick by that. It's like, I admire what they really try to achieve with this film, but it is a complete mess, especially towards the back end. There is a vocal group of people that do dislike this film, but actually there are some positives. However, let's move on to the box office as you'll see how this film performed with audiences. Yeah, going on to um, the box office stuff, especially considering that uh, it did eventually end up being an R-rated film despite the studio's best wishes. Yeah. So the budget was around about $130 million, which um, given the scale and the cast that they got for the film was actually, I think it's quite low, actually. They were quite... Uh, it is. It's fairly economical, even for the time that it was made, actually. Well, I think one of the things that has to be mentioned in regards to the budget is that it was made in the UK with the UK tax incentive. Yep. And you could add probably somewhere between 16 and 20 million to yep. the budget to account for that. But even so, in terms of the scale of the sets that they're building, the world that they're realizing, you get a real sense that most of the things that you're looking at are real world. Yeah, so yeah. That, so. even with that in, in mind, it's still... Very well done. A lot of money well spent. Yeah. So um, domestic, it makes 126 and a half thousand. Uh, thousand? What the fuck? <laughs> That'd be what awful. What a flop! <laughs> so 126.4 million. Yeah. And that's 31% of the, the overall. And then, yeah, foreign, it makes 276.8, which is 68.6% of the whole gross. Yeah. I think that further goes to nullify... The argument, because um, they were chasing the MPAA rating. Yeah. When, in fact, 
the majority of Aliens' business is right. actually from overseas. Yeah. And I think it's kind of always has been. Yes. Yeah, um, it, it, so, it has been a series that plays better abroad. Yeah. That actually makes up to a whole worldwide gross of $403 million. I know at the time that was pretty much a, a record for an R-rated film mm-hmm. to make that much, but obviously you still have to sort of adjust inflation with that. Um, and I still think, given that the prestige of the film at the time and the fact that it's like a glorious return to Alien and everything like that, I still feel it probably could have made more. Yeah. And I feel that it's really quite hampered on. I remember the word of mouth on this film being quite bad. I think this could have probably made somewhere in the range of the 500 to 600 yeah. million if, yeah. um, if it landed better. Because I think also one of the things it shows with the domestic gross is that a lot of people turned up for that first weekend, but the drop-off was quite steep because yeah. it made 50 million in its opening weekend, but it you normally expect a film to triple its opening weekend and that didn't manage it. It kind of dropped off steeply. Yeah, yeah. I mean, further exemplified by the fact that it's open weekend, it didn't open to number one. Yeah. However, it was the biggest number two. (laughs) 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 It was the biggest uh, film to open to number two, I think, in all time at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's not far behind, but the fact that you're beaten by Madagascar 3. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah, it must have been quite a... If only they would have got that kid-friendly audience. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, having said that, it's only about nine million behind in its opening weekend. But yeah, we had that uh, Madagascar 3 at number one, Prometheus at number two, Snower and the Huntsman at number three, in its second week with a 59% drop-off. Yeah, was that? Yeah. Uh, another strange film, Men in Black 3. Oh, that is an incredibly strange film. Yeah, uh, that's at number four. That's a tonal whiplash of a film with all the reshoots and stuff. Yeah, that they did yeah. For that. And then we've got Marvel's Avengers at five, which has been out for Oh, gosh, six I, forget, I forget that that's came out. That, yeah. yeah. And we've got the, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which, uh, considering it's in its six weeks, is pretty good to be at number six. Mm-hmm. What to expect when you're expecting? Err! Battleship at number eight. Potemkin? No, Battleship, the little board game. Oh, oh right. Film. Oh, oh. Starring Rihanna. Yeah. Oh, is that the board game that has aliens in it by yeah, any it chance? Yeah, had all the ingredients for success. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that. Film based in a board game, Aliens, Rihanna, Liam Neeson. What more do you need? I assume it was a record-breaking $100 million opening weekend. No, it was in its fourth weekend and made $2 million. Woohoo! <laughs> 55% drop You off. sunk my battleship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number nine, that classic Sasha Baron Cohen film, The Dictator. Ah, yes. And then a nice little film at the end for, to round it off, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. really enjoyed that film. So yeah, kind of a very strange uh, plethora of films there. <laughs> I just included where Prometheus sits in the Alien films. If you just want to say, like... Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm going to do this one sort of unjusted for inflation, and then we'll do an adjusted thing. So domestic, Prometheus sits at the top with $126 million, And, then and this got, is with the Alien series, isn't it? Yeah, so this is the whole... And then you've got Aliens at number two, 85. AVP, one, with the 80. Alien with 78, Alien 3 with 55, Alien Resurrection with 47, and AVP 2 with 41, which shows you how good that film is. Yeah. And then what we've got now is the American grosses adjusted for ticket price, so you can really see where the sits now. Yeah, uh, this so gives, got, I think, a more accurate view of yeah. where the film sits in terms of success, monetary success. Yeah, yeah. So you've got Alien at number one with 272, 
Aliens, number two, 198. Prometheus at number three, 135. So even that, the fact that it made half yeah. what Alien did. Alien 3, 115. AVP, 111. Alien Resurrection, 90. And again, AVP 2 with 51. Yeah. <laughs> Worldwide, it's pretty much the same story as the unadjusted, bar a couple of alterations. But um, I think that adjusted one really sort of gives you yeah, an indication of where it sits. It, it actually puts the film more in line with how I would rank the series as well. I mean, how would you rank the series? Because I, I think I would go Alien. I normally go Alien 3 and then Aliens, but there's like I'm, I mean, a, I'm, I'm a little bit flipped back and forth on that sometimes, but I think Alien 3, it's a lot higher than what people think. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a version of Alien 3 that no one's seen. Exactly, well, so, yeah. Which is my version of Alien 3, which <laughs> sadly was lost because my yeah. hard drive corrupted, but it's basically like an amalgamation of the best bits from the theatrical versus the best bits from the uh, assembly. Yes. Because the assembly's too long and the doesn't have the best chest burster, so I took the the dog burster out of the theatrical and tightened it up a bit. Yeah. And it's a much better film. And for it, it was, it was, and um, it was it was like right up there. I, w- for I me. will get round to redoing it one day, but it's just it's so time consuming that uh it's one of those things for but a after rainy that day. Core three, however yeah. you would rank them. I, I, I do think Prometheus. Oh, Prometheus comes is next. definitely yeah. definitely next. I mean you can't really say that resurrection or any of the avp films come anywhere near yeah the thing is with resurrection you can kind of enjoy it on its own but when, as soon as you start putting it next to the other ones it really starts to falter yeah it's like and it's like a parody of exactly yeah of the, and then avp is just a fucking write-off <laughs> um i mean i can't even enjoy it for trashiness because there's no characters or anything there no no not at all i tried to but it was we it both was tried we tried hard <laughs> So, um, are you any closer to understanding why Prometheus has been forgotten? I mean, uh, for a start, I think it hasn't really been forgotten. We're just... uh, It hasn't, but it has. I think the filmmakers are trying to make you forget it. I mean, I I want to say that, but at the same time, it's like, because they're still dealing with some of the themes set up by Prometheus in Covenant, I think it wants to make you forget some of Prometheus. Yeah. But keep... Keep the best bits co- of Yeah, it. exactly, yeah. yeah. But I think the thing that has been forgotten is the fact that around the time it was being released, they were really pushing, like, it's not a prequel to Alien. Yeah, It's yeah. its own original sci-fi thing. It's new and fresh ideas. It's really bold. I think that's the stuff that's been forgotten. Yes, definitely, yeah. I think all kind of pretense about the whole thing is has been dropped and yeah. it's like... And I think because of that kind of identity crisis it has with the isn't it an alien prequel, that damaged the film. Yeah, and I think people labelled it as being pretentious as well because it was so much less than what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. In terms of yeah, those what the kind of level really that it was delivering it, yeah. on. I think, yeah, it really sort of did a lot of damage. Yeah, definitely. And finally, is Prometheus one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it remain best forgotten? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm really on the fence with this. You, you are on. I, it's just a film that just frustrates me so much. You are on the fence, and I do yeah. think it is a frustrating film. I cannot disagree with that. And we gladly and happily talk about where its flaws are. I mean, not happily, but <laughs> we we can talk at length about where its flaws are and, and whatnot. But I cannot deny that Prometheus is also a film that entertains me, that still hits the marks for me in the right moments when I need it most. It still has one of the best characters that the series has had for a while. And um, 
despite its flaws, it's like, can I can I overlook them to to appreciate what they at least attempted with Prometheus? And I think the answer is just about. Yeah. Uh, for me, for me, it's it's just about. I'm forever going to be frustrated by what the film could have been, but what the film is is just about possible for me. I mean, just about possible. It's it's still a far cry above even when it was released of what the type of film we were being given um, prior to that. Yeah, exactly. And also in terms of what was being released at the time, yeah, I can't think of any kind of massively budgeted films that weren't uh, comic book movies or battleships or Transformers and stuff like that. And it's like when you put it against that kind of background of that you know that noise of comic book guff it makes prometheus look better i mean I, I can do this all day where i just kind of place it against other shit to make it look good but as as its own it's flawed very heavily but it's just about possible for me i'm just like oh can i pass that version i mean i enjoy it when yes, i watch mine yeah i mean I, I when i when i that. watch it with some of the really irritating things taken out or moved around yes yeah uh, i enjoy it a lot more but when i watch the theatrical it just annoys me so much mm-hmm. just for what's been wasted and and oh i completely no i completely understand so that I, for me i kind of feel that it the, the theatrical version for me like slips under that radar so yeah i'm and i think it's gotten more so as the longer times passed yeah like i said i think i've plateaued i mean this is a um a 6 to 6.5 out of 10 for me yeah. of a film. And that's just about enough to earn it a pass. But um, yeah, I completely understand that mm. sentiment. And I think this is just going to be one of those films in which we just about fall on different sides yeah. of the fence. I mean, only just. I mean, it still looks great and everything. Yeah. And, and some of the performance, and obviously David is great, but I just feel like there's so much holding it back yeah. from being anything, anything anywhere near satisfying. Yeah. Okay, so that's our review of Prometheus. Uh, Next week on Popcorn Digest, we're actually following it up with an Alien Covenant episode that we have recorded, well, that we will be recording next week. (laughs) Yeah. So so what we're essentially going to be contrasting this with is our outdated thoughts on Prometheus and (laughs) what Alien Covenant was going to be based on what we now think having the context that Alien Covenant provides. You may in fact come across some differing opinions, different opinions that have changed over time because I I can't say that my opinion is 100% the same as it was previously on Prometheus. But I guess we'll see more on the next Mm -hmm. episode. But until then, it's been bye from myself, Gareth. And bye from me. Thank you for listening.